So we are going through the book of Acts right now, and as we continue this series, I just want to take a moment, especially because I've missed a couple Sundays here and there the last couple months, and so I want to, for continuity's sake, kind of really take some time to put this in context and review where we've been in our journey. It's been nearly 2,000 years uh, since a, a small band of uh, men and their leader, Jesus Christ, changed the world forever. They shaped the world that we live in today. They really defined this world between Christians and non-Christians today. When you think about it, the rise and expansion of Christianity is nothing short of miraculous, given its pretty inauspicious beginnings in a little dirty manger outside Bethlehem on that cold winter night. So let's review kind of where we've been so far in this series. We're, we're calling this, uh, the book of Acts, to the end of the earth. And we've seen, indeed, the gospel begin to spread. We started out in chapter 1, which was really part you know, 2, the introduction to part 2 of Luke's two-volume work. Remember we said that Luke, the author of Acts, who wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, really wrote more of the New Testament than any other single writer. Uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which is part two, con constitute more, uh, you know, real estate in the in the New Testament than even all of Paul's thirteen epistles. And in Acts chapter one, we looked at that prayer meeting that took place right after Christ ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. They replaced Judas as pre Peter preached that message to the disciples that were gathered there in the upper room. And we talked about really what makes the church the church. And then in chapter two, we see the birthday of the church proper. Uh, as the Holy Spirit comes and moves in a powerful new way, and the church is born after Peter preached his famous Pentecost sermon, and 3,000 souls were saved. And then we camped out in chapter 2 for a while and looked at the model church. We looked at some characteristics of what that early church uh, was like, and how does the church today, 2,000 years later, compare? And what are some of those timeless principles that we see uh, exemplified in that first church in Jerusalem that really we have gotten away from today and maybe need to uh, revisit. And then uh, as the church really begins to start moving, we see the story of Peter and John and the man at the beautiful gate who they healed. And uh, we talked about, as we kind of went through that section verse by verse, the pathway to assurance and the importance of how we can know for sure that if we do what Jesus says to do, which is believe in Him, we can have eternal life. And then we see the beginnings of persecution already in the early church. Less than 10 years old at that time, and Peter and John twice were arrested and beaten. And yet they stood firm and said, we're going to obey God, not uh, the government. And then in chapters 6 and 7, we see the introduction of Stephen uh, who was one of the early servants that was chosen to help serve in the church. As the church grew, they needed more than just these elders that could uh, preach and teach, but they needed servants who could help uh, tend to the needs of the body. And uh, Stephen then preaches a very powerful sermon, the longest sermon in the book of Acts in chapter 7, and it results in his martyrdom. And he becomes the first martyr, at least recorded in the New Testament, of the early church. And then... Uh, and by the way, in chapter 6 and 7 there, we use the Jewish leaders, who are the ones that stoned Stephen, as a picture of unbelief, as we talked about 
why would someone not believe the gospel? And what does it mean when you harden your heart and refuse to receive the free gift of eternal life? Then in chapter 8, we talked about Simon the sorcerer who got saved, but then very quickly fell back into his old habits. And we talked about how old habits die hard. Continuing in chapter 8, we saw Philip's interaction with the Ethiopian military political leader uh, and how he led him uh, to the Lord. And we talked about community outreach, which is simply sharing the good news about Jesus Christ in the normal course of your everyday life. And then we come to that pivotal chapter, chapter 9, where Saul, the great murderer and enemy of Christianity and murderer of Christians, who meets the Lord on the road to Damascus. And we talked about God's amazing, matchless grace and how if Saul can be saved, anybody can be saved. Continuing on in chapter 9, we talked about how Ananias, God raised him up to minister to Saul after he got saved. And, and we talked about how we need more heroes like Ananias and Saul in the church today. And really, uh, how can we find heroes like that in our day? In chapter 10, which is kind of bringing us up to where we are contextually in the flow of thought uh, this morning, uh, Peter uh, is, receives a vision to prepare him to go and preach the gospel to a Gentile. So for the first time, we're going to see the gospel go beyond Jerusalem, and we're going to see Gentiles come to know the Lord, namely Cornelius and his family. But God demonstrated to Peter through a vision that uh, grace is preeminent and the law has run its course. And uh, we talked about law versus grace. And then the last time, we talked about Peter's encounter with Cornelius specifically and, and how what did he exactly tell him he needed to do to be saved, to be forgiven for his sin and given the free gift of eternal life. And what precisely must someone believe about Jesus in order to be saved? And that brings us then to chapter 11, where in chapter, in the first 18 verses of chapter 11, just to sort of summarize them, we're not going to read through them in detail, uh, Peter essentially is called on the carpet in front of the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem, the, the church, rather the church leaders in Jerusalem who were Jews, but they were saved Jews, Christians, and he has to defend the salvation of Cornelius and, more specifically, uh, the salvation of Gentiles in general. He basically has to defend God's grace. And he does such a masterful job that by the time you get to verse 18, the, the church leaders are praising God that, indeed, uh, the gospel has come to the Gentiles as well. And so then we pick it up in uh, chapter uh, 11, verse 19. And I want to read just the first a uh, few verses, uh, and then we'll kind of pick up with uh, our exposition this morning. So if you want to follow along, I'm not going to put these verses on the screen. I'm just going to begin reading in verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus, and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. So now we're seeing the, the, the Gentiles, the Greeks there in Antioch, hearing the word of God. Notice verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, 
and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Antioch would later become sort of Paul and Barnabas' home base as they take that first missionary journey. Verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas de departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. We'll stop there for now. I'll come back to verse 26, which is kind of our focal verse in just a moment. But if we kind of take these cities that Luke just told us about in the expansion of the gospel and look at them on a map, we see here is Jerusalem, and that's, of course, where the church started. And the gospel went forth, and many, many people, many thousands, were saved there. But then it spread to Cyprus after the martyrdom of Stephen. Remember, as the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, the scribes and Pharisees and others began to persecute the church, and Saul was a member of that group, by the way, Saul who later became Paul, uh, they had to flee. And many of them fled to Cyprus. And then we saw the gospel spreading to Tarsus, Paul's hometown, which is up in modern-day Turkey, the eastern part uh, of Turkey. And also to Damascus, where Paul was headed when he met Jesus and got saved. And then Antioch, up in Syria, where Paul and Barnabas headquartered, and we're, where we're going to pick up the story uh, today. And then in, in the coming chapters, chapter 13 and, and 14, that's where Paul and Barnabas are sent off to go spread the word on their missionary journey. So the date is the spring of 43 A.D. The church is now 10 years old, celebrating its 10th birthday at the time of the events that we're reading about here. And the context here is chapter 11 verses 19 to 26 and the key verse is this verse 26 so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people this is in Antioch and notice the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch for the first 10 years of the church those who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone those who had believed the gospel as the only means of gaining eternal life, as we talked about last time, continued for the first 10 years to be called by the common cultural term of the day, disciple. But 10 years into the church, that changed. Now, this growing movement had a name, Christianity. And its members began to be called Christians. It might surprise you to think now, 2,000 years later, when Christian is such a common term, to know that for the first 10 years of the church, the term was not used. So the question is, when, when Luke tells us that it was at Antioch, when these disciples first began to be called Christians, what is the difference then between a disciple and a Christian? What's the difference? Well, let's take the word disciple first, since that's what the early believers were called up until this time. So it was for the whole year that they assembled the church and taught a great many people and the disciples. The term disciple is the Greek word mathetes. It's very common in the New Testament. It's used 269 times in the Gospels and Acts. But get this. The word disciple is never used after the book of Acts. Not found one time in all of the epistles or all of the Paul's epistles or the general epistles or the book of Revelation. It was a term disciple that was used almost exclusively during Christ's earthly life 
when people were literally following him. The term mathetes, as you see on the screen, means follower, a, a learner, a pupil. And the culture of the day was when you found a master teacher and you began following them, that you literally followed them. You would pack a lunch and you would go where they go. When they stopped and sat down to teach, you would stop and sit down to listen. And when they gather, when the, the teacher gathered a crowd, you would be in the crowds and you would want to hear what they would have to say. In some cases, and this was true of Jesus for many of his followers, it would mean leaving your families and your father and your mother and, 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 and kind of leaving your things behind and following him for days on end. Now, of course, the term disciple, as all words, is defined in its context. And in modern day uh, usage, the term disciple doesn't carry with it that issue of proximity and geography and physically following close behind somebody. It generally refers to someone who is a follower of someone's teachings, their principles, their worldview. So as I mentioned in a previous message, a person can be a disciple of another in a variety of contexts in the sports world. You know, you might be a disciple of Tom Landry as a football coach. Maybe he taught you principles of coaching. Or in politics, you might be a disciple of, uh, say, Saul Alinsky. I hope not, since he was a Satan worshiper. But you might be a disciple of him, like Obama was. Um, you, you might be a disciple of uh, a particular type of teaching technique. Uh, a disciple just means someone who follows the teachings of someone else. So it's not surprising, since this term was so prevalent in the Gospels, that in the early days of Christianity, what we now call Christianity, believers, those who believed that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for their sins, were called disciples. That's what they'd been called while Jesus was with them. And especially in the early days of the church, there was a great expectancy that this same Jesus would come back any moment. Remember, he had said, I'm going to come back. And then when he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God on the Mount of uh, Ascension, right before, uh, right, right before the church started, which Luke tells us about in Acts chapter 1, that these men in white raiment appeared to the disciples that were gathered there after Jesus went up and said, uh, hey, what are you doing here? Go, go back to Jerusalem. Do what Jesus told you to do. He's going to come back. Well, you get the sense, especially as you listen to some of Peter's early messages in Acts chapter 3 and 4, that they really thought any second he was going to come back and establish the kingdom, just like he promised. So they continued to call themselves disciples because they were following him, and even though he was not with them at that moment, they expected him to come back at any moment. But as the church grew and time went on, as we read a moment ago, in Antioch, they began to call themselves Christians because it was clear that Jesus was not there in physical bodily form at that moment, and they weren't physically following him as a disciple culturally would do. So in Scripture, we see the term disciple used to describe three different types of people. It's very important to understand these distinctions. First of all, there were curious disciples. These were people who followed Jesus while he was here out of curiosity. I mean, he was healing the sick. He was calming the storms. He was turning the water into wine. He was gaining quite a following. But these curious disciples were not saved. They did not believe in him for eternal life. And we see several examples of this. Judas is a notable one. He was one of the 12 disciples, but he, the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John, was not a believer. 
Uh, we also read in the Gospel of John, for example, in chapter 6, that there were lots of crowds that followed Jesus, but they did not believe in him. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. So the curious disciples. But then we see the convinced. The convinced. These were people who also followed Jesus, but they believed his message. They believed him when he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, which he said repeatedly. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Uh, he said, if, if you believe that I am he, you will not die in your sins, right? So these were the saved, but they weren't always committed. Um, we see examples like Peter, who was clearly a believer, but he wasn't always following Christ. So you can be a believer and not always be following Christ. Obviously, that's the goal. As a believer, one who's received the free gift of eternal life, we want to devote every day to following Jesus, to following his teachings, to living for him, serving for him, um, you know, surrendering our lives to him every day. That's a matter of discipleship, and that's the calling of every believer. But the reality is, sin often rears its ugly head. We have that struggle that we have talked about uh, in the sanctification process between the old man and the new man, and we don't always do the things that we know we should. And, and mark it down, anytime we sin, in that moment, we are not being a disciple. You can't be following Christ and sinning at the same time. They don't go together, right? Uh, Peter, when he denied Christ three times and even cursed him, in that snapshot moment of his life, was anything but a disciple. He was the opposite of a disciple. In fact, it's interesting, in Matthew uh, 16, if you want to turn there, we see another interesting encounter with uh, Peter. And in Matthew 16, verse 21, we read, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So as Jesus is getting closer to that final week, Passion Week, when he enters Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and by Thursday he's betrayed in the garden, by Friday he's laid in a tomb, the closer he gets to that time, he begins to more explicitly explain to his disciples that he's going to have to die on the cross. They never really picked up on it. And Peter, true to form, was always the outspoken one who would react when Jesus would say things that he didn't really like. And Matthew tells us in verse 22 of chapter 16, then Peter took him aside and began to uh, rebuke him. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, Lord, come here. i got to talk to you. i got a problem. Let's, let's come over here. I need to rebuke you. Okay, good for Peter. Um, and, but, uh, you know, Peter said to him, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And this is that famous moment when Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you, have, you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Now, it doesn't come through so much in the English translation, but essentially what Jesus is saying when he says, get behind me, it's a more literal wooden translation would be, turn away from following me. In other words, you can't be following me, Peter, and rebuking me and rejecting what I'm saying and disagreeing with me at the same time. You can't be a disciple and be sinning at the same time. And, uh, and then Jesus goes on to explain what really being a disciple means. 
But we need to understand there's a distinction between being a disciple and being a believer. Unfortunately, as we've been talking about in our midweek series on Wednesday nights, a lot of people take these passages like Matthew 16, 24 to 27 and make those requirements for getting saved. In other words, if you want to get saved and go to heaven, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to pledge to follow Christ. You've got to make a promise and agreement with Christ that you'll follow Him unashamedly. None of that is true. Nobody gets saved on the strength of their commitment to Jesus. We get saved on the strength of Christ's commitment to us when we empty-handed come to Him and say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Salvation is a free gift, not something we earn by some type of contractual agreement with God promising to be Jesus' disciple. Discipleship comes after salvation. Salvation is a free gift received simply by faith. Peter was already saved when Jesus literally called him Satan here, which is another whole issue. Did you realize not only can a believer be called a son of Satan if you're sinning in that moment, you can actually be called Satan. Now, people get confused by some of those passages in 1 John 3. They don't understand the context. So we see curious disciples who never believed the gospel, never believed Jesus was who he said he was. We see the convinced who certainly believed Jesus and trusted him for eternal life, and they're in heaven today. But the goal is to be committed. And we see lots of examples of committed disciples in Scripture, those who were saved and committed. And this is a description of any believer who is faithfully following Christ. So if you're a committed disciple, it means that you've trusted in Jesus Christ, and each day you're seeking your best to be a fully devoted follower of Him and His teachings. You're, you're living for Him. You're walking in the new man, to use Paul's terminology, and not the old man. You're walking in the spirit, not after the flesh, right? You're walking by faith, not by sight. And all of those contrasts that the New Testament epistles begin to describe the Christian life uh, in, in, the, in such terms. It's about following Christ, not physically in proximity to Him like it was during His day, but by following His teachings and ultimately the teachings of the written Word of God. But what about the term Christian then? So that's disciple. But Luke tells us that disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Well, the word Christian is only used three times in the entire Bible. This is the first time. It's the Greek word Christianos. It means one who is associated with Christ in some way. And again, in Acts 11.26, this is when the disciples, the believing disciples, began to be called Christians. So similarly, we see three types of Christians in the world today. There are three types of people who identify with Christ in some way. The first is what I call geographic Christians. Geographic Christians. These are unsaved people. They've never believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only one who can save them. They've not placed their faith in Him. But they call themselves Christians because of where they live. You know, they say they're, they're part of the Western world, so they must be Christian, right? As opposed to the Eastern world, where they might be Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim, right? So there's geographic Christians. And then there's generic Christians. These are also people who've never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But they consider themselves Christian by default. 
generically they say, well, I'm not Muslim, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Hindu, whatever, so I must be a Christian. Not so much that they necessarily live in another part of the world. They may live right here among us. Perhaps there's some of you in the room today or maybe listening to the live stream that think, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I mean, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Hindu. I'm not whatever. So I must be a Christian. You know, my parents went to a Christian church, so I identify as a Christian, right? It's what I call generic Christians. But again, that's not the biblical definition. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, the one thing that the Bible is explicitly clear on again and again, more than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life on one thing, faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. If you've never done that, then you may call yourself a Christian, but you're just a generic Christian. When the Bible uses the term Christian, it's talking about genuine Christianity. And these are people who, in fact, have trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. They've placed their faith in Him. They're born again by faith in Christ. Genuine Christians. I hope that represents you. See, some people may be listening to me this morning, and they may be a disciple. They may follow Christ. They may say, oh, he's got some pretty interesting teachings, and he was a pretty famous prophet, and he made quite a splash on the world uh, 2,000 years ago. I think I'll do some of the things that, that he said. But until you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to be a disciple, but you're not going to be a Christian. Conversely, you may, may maybe never even contemplated whether I should follow Christ or not. Maybe that's not the issue. You just know a little bit about Christianity or the term Christ or Christian, and you think, well, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. I mean, I'm not any other religion, so I must be a Christian. Well, again, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not a genuine Christian. Let's take a look at the other two times the word Christian is used in the New Testament. Interestingly, at the end of the book of Acts, uh, during one of Paul's trials, Agrippa says to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Do you remember that dialogue? In other words, you almost persuaded me, Agrippa said, to believe in Christ for eternal life, to believe that he's the Son of God who died and rose again. See, the Jews had trouble with both of those, even though the Old Testament clearly prophesied that's who the Messiah would be the Son of God, they nevertheless couldn't get their hands around that, the deity of Christ. They couldn't get their hands around His resurrection, again, even though the Old Testament predicted that. And so Agrippa here was saying, you know what, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And by the way, becoming a Christian is a choice. Uh, the gospel goes forth, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, and when you hear the gospel and believe the gospel, you're saved. Contrary to what some people teach, it's not something you're forced to do. Uh, anybody can believe the gospel. The Spirit of God is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. The Spirit of God is drawing people to Christ. But there has to come a moment where in personal faith, nobody can do it for you. I can't believe the gospel for you, and you can't believe it for me. Each person must personally come to the place where they say, Yes, I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. And Jesus is my Savior. And I'm trusting Him and Him alone today as the only one who has the power to forgive sin and give life. And Agrippa didn't do that. He almost did it, but he didn't do it. And then the only other time we see the term Christian used is by Peter 
in his epistle, shortly before he was martyred. This was about 64 A.D. And he says, if any, so by now the church is, you know, 30 years old. Two more decades have passed since the encounter in Antioch. And Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in this matter. Because as Peter says, you know, we are going to suffer. Don't consider it strange when you face fiery trials. Because Jesus himself said in the upper room the very night he was betrayed and went to the cross, remember what he said, in this world you're going to have tribulation, so be ready. Paul, in one of his latter epistles, it's interesting that these New Testament authors, toward the end of their lives, before they were martyred, tend to talk more about persecution. I mean, they were persecuted from the very beginning. We saw Peter and John in Acts chapter 3. But Paul, in his last epistle, 2 Timothy, reminds us that if anyone desires to be godly, he will suffer persecution. Because when you do the things that Jesus did, you're going to receive the things that Jesus received. Right? You can't, you can't live for Christ and expect not to suffer for Christ. And uh, I think that's what Jesus was saying so much of the time when he talked to believers about discipleship. So many of these discipleship passages that sadly Bible teachers today confuse as being ways to get saved, salvation passages, they don't understand that in the context he's talking to believers, people that were already saved, and we know this from the context. And I think we need to remember that uh, as we, especially in this day and age, and as we see the you know, world hurtling out of control and the Luciferians rapidly pushing us toward the end game of their agenda, we think so, we see suffering is going to get worse and worse. Not something you can ignore. I mean, if you're not suffering, consider it uh, uh, an exception and praise God for it. But guess what? Praise God when you're suffering too. <laughs> Give glory to God, as Peter tells us right here in 1 Peter 4.16. You might also consider, if you're not suffering, uh, are you really on the devil's radar? I mean, the devil doesn't really care much about complacent Christians. He doesn't care much about, you know, those disciples that are, you know, convinced but not committed, right? Because you're not doing him any harm. In fact, you're helping him, right? If, if you're not living like a Christian, then you're discrediting the cause of Christ, you're bringing shame to Christ, which the devil loves. He's not going to worry about you. But it's the Christians that are committed, fully devoted followers of Christ, making a difference in this world that Satan sets his crosshairs on and wants to discourage and, and bring suffering to. So three types of uh, Christians here. Uh, we see the unsaved geographically, people that live in a certain area and say, well, I'm not in the West, so I must not, you know, I mean, I'm in the West, so I must be a Christian. I'm not in the East. They're generic Christians. Well, I don't know. I'm, I don't really identify with any religion, but if I had to pick one, it'd be Christian. And then we have uh, the genuine. So here's the question. Um, which one are you? Maybe you think, well, I come to church, so I must be a Christian. Or I was raised in a Christian family, I must be a Christian. Well, if you cannot remember a time in your life when you personally trusted in Jesus Christ, it's not about walking an aisle or 
coming to an altar necessarily or signing some card or raising a hand. It's not about repeating some prayer. The Bible never talks about a sinner's prayer. It's about faith. 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 Just like we talked about last time. If you can't remember a moment in time when you trusted in Jesus Christ, which you can do while you're sitting right here, by the way, it's not something that you have to make a public show of. It's a personal decision of faith. If you can't remember that, then I would say you're in this generic category. But you don't have to stay there. Today can be the day. But if you've been born again by faith, if you trusted Christ, then you are a genuine Christian. It's not determined by how righteously you act or how well you behave or uh, you know, uh, what you do. It's determined by one thing and one thing only. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation? Throughout the first ten years of the church, again and again, Luke reminds us that people joined the movement that would later be called Christianity one way, by faith alone. Remember he said in the passage we read this morning, the hand of the Lord was with him and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. He says, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And now all, going back to the beginning of the church in chapter 2, all who believed were together and had all things in common. In chapter 5, many of those who heard the word believed. Remember, you've got to hear the gospel to believe the gospel. Chapter 5, believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Chapter 8, when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. You see it again and again. Simon himself also believed. Talked about that, Simon the sorcerer. Many believed on the Lord in Acts chapter 9, after hearing of Saul's conversion. Peter and Cornelius to him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And Luke's going to continue throughout his historical account of the early days of the church, as we shall see in the weeks to come, to give us these progress reports, these reminders of how people believed the gospel and became genuine Christians. So how do you become a genuine Christian? Well, it's not by where you live. It's not by default. It's not based on your heritage or by being good or nice or by going to church or by being baptized. You know, a lot of times people use the term genuine Christian and they say, well, a genuine Christian is one who behaves like a Christian. If they're not behaving like a Christian, they must not be a genuine Christian. Nope, that's not true. You know why? Because the Bible is very clear that Christians sometimes don't act like Christians. So you don't ever fall into the trap of evaluating the genuineness of your Christian faith by looking at your behavior. Now those of you that you know, are students of the Word, you may be thinking of a few passages here and there in the New Testament that tend to be taken that way, but they're all taken out of context. And sometime we'll go through those passages. But there's not a single passage that says, you want to know if you're saved and going to heaven? Look at your behavior. Never. Our assurance, as we talked about several weeks ago, is based on the promise of Jesus Christ, who said, if you do the one thing I tell you to do, you're going to heaven. Eternal life guaranteed. And that's faith alone in Christ alone. Then having become born again by faith, you, you ought to be a disciple. You ought to live and behave right. But your behavior is no determiner of the genuineness of your Christianity. 
Christian, Christian genuineness is based upon your faith alone. So how do you become a genuine Christian? Only by believing in Jesus Christ who died and rose again through your sins. So what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is one who's trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone as the, as the only hope of eternal life. So what's the takeaway? Well, as I said, it's a personal moment of introspection and reflection right now. And that is, are you a genuine Christian? Has there been a moment when you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation? When faith meets the gospel, has that happened in your life? If not, let me encourage you to do that today. Again, as I'm closing this service in prayer, you can be talking to the Lord privately right where you are and just let Him know that you are trusting in Him as the only one who can save you. And then if you do that for the first time today, let somebody know. Uh, now you're part of the Christian community. Now you're part of the family of God. Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let somebody know before you leave today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, this simplicity of this term Christian. And uh, thank you for the clearness of the gospel message throughout your word. So simple a child can understand it. And that is that all who trust in you can be saved from the penalty of sin and have eternal life. So, Lord, how we pray, if there's one here within the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of faith. Today would be the day that they trust in you and the day of salvation. For those of us who already know you, Lord, we pray that you would uh, convict us of our need to follow you more closely, uh, to fall in love with Jesus all over again, to serve him, to make a difference in this world for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.